I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project for the 4th of July, 2010. And for the occasion, a reminder that while one nation indivisible may be an ideal, it is not a done deal. Easy enough to say liberty and justice for all, but what do we mean by all? That is where the real work of democracy begins. Well, today, two stories about redefining all, about getting a place at the table, making a more perfect union. In the first part of the program, a song that imagined a new and fairer future for the country and maybe helped make it happen. In part two, a man who definitely did make things happen, who took on the established order and helped to overthrow it. Stories for Independence Day, coming up. Now for part one of our program, the history of an anthem. And I don't mean the Star-Spangled Banner in this case. I mean the song sometimes referred to as the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. It was written in 1900 and quickly won a special place in African-American tradition. It's part celebration, part prayer, a call to action. You could even call it a political work song. And its message still stands more than a century after its birth. In the next half hour, we're going to hear some performances of Lift Every Voice and Sing, and we'll discuss its power and persistence with Imani Perry. She's a professor in the Center for African American Studies at Princeton University, and she's writing a book about the song. First of all, can you give us a little uh, capsule history of this song, how it originated? Sure. Um, The song was written by James Weldon Johnson um, while he was the principal of the Stanton School in Jacksonville, Florida, which is actually still open. Um, He wrote it as part of a celebration of uh, Lincoln's birthday, and it was to be performed by the children of the Stanton School, 500 students, um, in 1900. Um, His brother set the lyrics to music, uh, and so um, almost immediately Johnson understood sort of how powerful the song was, and it was pretty dramatic that by the 1920s it was being sung all across the South in segregated schools and sung in churches and sort of pasted at the back of hymnals. So um, it caught on uh, relatively quickly and has survived for a long time. We should remind listeners who James Weldon Johnson was. Right. um, James Weldon Johnson was this kind of extraordinary Renaissance man. He was the first African-American to be admitted to the bar in Florida. He was served as a consul to Nicaragua and Venezuela. He was a novelist and in some ways is known as sort of the the father uh, or a kind of granduncle to the Harlem Renaissance. He was a real mentor to Harlem Renaissance figures. He wrote Broadway show tunes. Um, He was, with his brother, he was um, one of the founders of ASCAP, you know, the, uh, the Society for um, Composers and Authors of pu- and Publishers of Music. So he was just, just an extraordinary Renaissance man, and this is one of his many accomplishments. But he actually talked about writing the song as the thing he was most proud of. Really? And he, he was also head of the, the NAACP at one point, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and civil rights activist, obviously. Yes. Um, now, he originally wrote this as a poem, and it was his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, who, who provided the music. Right. Um, did it last long as a spoken poem before it became a full-fledged song? A very short period of time between his authorship, I guess a couple of years, and Rosamond putting it to music. And they partnered very frequently with um, Johnson writing lyrics and Rosamond writing music on all kinds of compositions. It's interesting that um, he wrote it 
initially as a poem without music, and yet the opening line is, lift every voice and sing, and, and the refrain is, sing a song. So there's this idea of it being a song from the very beginning. Yes, and, he, and in his autobiography, he writes it, he, he describes it as something that he intended um, very early on as something to be set to music. So um, the vision of it as a song, I think, was there from the beginning, but also um, at that period in African-American poetry, there, was con- there were constant references to music because here was a musical tradition that was already well-established and a huge part of the cultural expression. The literary tradition was relatively um, recent, and so there's a, there was a way that writers were consistently, particularly poets, making reference to music and drawing upon um, the power of music in their sort of that transition to being a more literary culture. And I know James Alden Johnson was someone who was very um, interested in church oratory. Yes. Uh, he collected sermons. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. um, well, let's look at the lyrics and, and break it down a little bit. There's some particular lines I'm interested in, and I know you've researched it, so you must know them backwards and forwards. Why don't we start by hearing the first verse, and this is a performance by the Joslin Choral Society. Lift every voice and sing to So this is the, the most famous verse of all, the one that if anybody knows the lyrics, they know this particular uh, stanza. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Uh, the first thought I had when I, you know, when I really think about that is the amount of confidence and optimism in those lyrics, yeah. given that it was written in 1900, mm-hmm. you know, let our rejoicing rise, full of the uh, hope that the present has brought us. What was happening in 1900 that gave James Walden Johnson, uh, you know, that kind of um, rosy outlook? <laughs> right. Well, that's a great question, and I have... I've been thinking about this quite a bit because this is four years after the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, which essentially legalizes formal segregation right, <laughs> throughout the South. Um, this is in the midst of 
the backlash to Reconstruction, you know, violence, lynching, right, all kinds of economic oppression. So um, things were pretty bleak at that moment. So I think that the optimism can be under, and the song can be understood in a couple of different ways. One is that um, looking backwards to slavery, right, it's the sense that in, in contrast to slavery, there has been some freedom that has been gained. Um, and the promise of Reconstruction, and he lived through Reconstruction, perhaps um, indicated to him that it was appropriate to have a hope, even though the hopes had been dashed, right, but to push forward and struggle. I mean, there was this, this glimmer of possibility in that era. Um, and so the sense of, um, of hopefulness and optimism, I think, is supposed to sort of generate kind of mobilization. And that was a big part of... Um, black civic culture at the time was this sort of preparation for citizenship um, and performing a kind of citizenship in the in the public space in the black community that was denied externally. So the sense of sort of hope and uplift and mobilization and upward mobility, all those sorts of things are embodied in those lyrics. And there was, uh, I think people may not know this, but there was a great deal of political organizing. Absolutely. And Florida was one of the, the epicenters, actually, yes. in the South. Yes. You know, we, we learn all about the civil rights movement beginning, you know, according to official history, like in the 50s, but it had been going on a very long time. Right. It's what in academia we call the long civil rights movement. We're <laughs> studying going further and further back, right, to study the history. Now let's listen to the second verse. Um, and this is a, a version you recommended to me, the, the Harlem Boys Choir. And it's a, it's a very, very um, elegant and, and maybe almost classical version. <laughs> So those words are stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out of the gloomy past till now we stand at last, where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. I noticed nowhere in the song is there any direct mention of race, of this being an African-American song. Right. But it is implied by lines like bitter the chastening rod, which obviously right. refers to, to slavery and oppression. Right. I mean, I think what the song does is it takes the specific elements of African-American history and puts them in epic terms and universalizes them, um, and that that's part of a, a process of kind of identity creation. Um, and if you imagine, you know, there was, at this period, it was almost as though African Americans were written out as a sense of history, right? American history um, was, not, was not a story which included African Americans as um, agents 
or as subjects. Um, and so the song and, and that, that um, the second verse in particular sort of tells this story and puts it in these, these um, grand terms and, and casts it not as a story of sort of, of degradation or inferiority, but one of coming through, I mean, sort of like, you know, the, the story of Exodus, right, of coming through these trials, right, to this place of promise and possibility. Uh, yeah, and, and of course it joins a tradition then of, of likening uh, the plight of African Americans to that of the ancient Hebrews, yeah. uh, the identification with Moses and Absolutely. all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I noticed that one thing that would maybe mark it as, as, as an African American song, I mean, if someone looked really closely, although it is in universal language, the we is not obviously at first glance black people in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it talks about the gloomy past. And I'm wondering, most American songs, popular songs, uh, songs of uplift, probably didn't refer to the gloomy past. Right. It, more likely the glorious past, huh? Mm-hmm. Of the right. founding. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is the 7th Avenue Project, special nation-building edition. I'm Robert Polly, and in this half of the show, I'm talking to Imani Perry of Princeton University about the history of Lift Every Voice and Sing, the song that some have called the Black National Anthem. We're making our way through the song verse by verse, and now it's time for the third and final section. This performance is from the Women of the Calabash. And the, uh, the lyrics there are, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee, shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand, true to our God, true to our native land. Want to talk about those lines? Yes. Well, um, this was the verse that um, you may remember during um, President Obama's inauguration that Reverend Lowry um, included as part of his uh, benediction. Yeah, he read those lines. Yeah, those lines. 
And I think it was really um, significant. I mean, one, because of the, sig- the symbolic meaning of the song and understanding Obama's election as having historic sig- significance for the United States, but particularly for African Americans, but also because it's that verse that is sort of geared towards saying, okay, let's, even when possibility opens up, let's remember to stay on the path, right, of, of a particular set of values. Um, and and so I think it was he was very intentional about choosing those lyrics, right, to maintain the values that were part of the song, that were part of the long civil rights movement. Um, I also think that the final line, may we forever stand true to our God, true to our native land, is, is also really interesting because it shows how while the song is not kind of a nationalist song explicitly anywhere else, it is imagined as fitting within a notion of American citizenship, mm-hmm. and so there's this um, so there's this claim to Americanness um, and a kind of patriotism, but a patriotism that includes this critique of the injustices that African Americans have experienced in American history, and a responsibility to move towards equality, right? To organize. Um, and be activists for equality. So, I, I mean, I think it's a really kind of masterful ending um, and really uh, inspirational, which is another piece of why it has been so resilient. Yeah, that assertion, our native land, I mean, that, that, that we are part of this, this, this heritage, we are part of this, of this homeland uh, as much as anybody, it's remarkable and strong, given you know obviously the second class citizenship or lack of citizenship that black people had right. through most of, of American history yeah I, I mean I, and I think as um, part of a way of thinking about that is also understanding the the passage of the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments as a kind of second founding, and how much African Americans who organized in the latter part of the nineteenth century and the first part of the twentieth century. Um, really fashioned a lot of their political claims around those amendments as part of the Constitution, and that the, the southern states in particular were acting contrary to what the Constitution promised them as citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a piece of it, but also the sense that on these shores, right, African Americans were created within the context of the United States, like a relatively young people, but this idea that this is the late native land that the admixture of cultures of of Africa and um, and Native Americans and Europeans that together produced this this population who were African Americans. So this is really the native land of that community. Mm. So you've got these words that are are very dense, full of meaning, yes. uh, that 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 um, strike notes of almost you know biblical grandeur, but have a kind of modern political consciousness behind them. Uh, you know, obviously a, a really, really important piece of writing there. And then you've got this gorgeous music. Yes. A winning combination for sure. Yes, and Rosamond was, he gets um, relatively short shrift. And I'm, I'm writing a book about this song and um, about its impact. And one of the things that I'm excited about is being able to write about Rosamond because virtually no one talks about him. You know, he was, he was um, an incredible musician. He studied at the New England Conservatory at a period when that was very unusual, when it was very unusual for African Americans to, to um, go there. He traveled Europe. He wrote for Broadway for many years. And so, um, really, the music is, 
is a central piece of the power of the song. And, and James Weldon Johnson, his brother, was more famous. And so sometimes you'll hear people just say, James Weldon Johnson wrote this song, period. Yeah. How, how does the musical composition reinforce the message of the words? Um, the, the impact of the music, because it has what I term an anthemic quality, it it's, um, uh, has a lot of gravitas, right? And it has this, this kind of resonance. It calls for seriousness um, for the listener and a kind of concentration for the listener and for the singer that I think has made it so um, important for formal occasions. And one of the things that, that I've noticed is that while there has been different versions of the song, different kinds of improvisations of the song in recorded music, particularly in jazz, that in the kind of um, ritual and formal occasions where this song is sung, there's very little variation. And that's a big deal because improvisation is such a huge element of African-American musical culture. Mm -hmm. And so for this to be an outlier, people don't generally improvise on this song when they sing it in, in, um, in community contexts. It's it's almost as though that's part of what makes it the anthem, is that you don't change it right? mm. when you sing, this is, we know mm. that when we perform this ritual, this is how we do it, right? Um, and everyone then has an opportunity to learn it, right, and then participate um, in the singing of it. So, um, so that fidelity to the, to the music, the sound of the music itself, I think is, is quite significant. Now, now, you said after the Johnson brothers wrote it in 1900, it, it caught on pretty quickly? Yes, it caught on um, pretty quickly. Um, it, it, it was very much a regional song in some ways, so it became part of virtually every um, kind of school assembly or, you know, um, civic organizations, events, or um, uh, on Sundays at church uh, this song was sung repeatedly as part of all kinds of ritual contexts throughout the segregated South, and largely in African-American contexts. The song had a revitalization um, in the 60s um, as part of the Civil Rights Movement, and also, really interestingly, as part of the Black Power Movement. And I find that interesting because so much of the Black Power Movement was about sort of shedding um, civil rights movement kinds of practices and the kind of identities, and yet they retained the song, that song, even in the midst of sort of letting go of older ideas of how black people sort of performed their citizenship. Um, in that 1970s period, you also had this song beginning to sort of cross over into the mainstream and being sung in, in sort of formal occasions that weren't just within the African-American community, and also more and more in northern cities. And so it, it, it's a song that has moved. Yeah, I th I'd like to play a, a version of the song from the 1970s. Uh, it's a very well-known version by, by Kim Weston, sung live at the Watt Stacks concert in Los Angeles in 1972. And this was uh, an event that was very, you know, very much a part of the black consciousness, black uh, power movement at the time. And here it is, a funkified, updated version being sung alongside of a lot of, um, you know, leading-edge pop music of the day. Ring, ring with the 
So you, you say that it, it was a song that um, was liked even in the, the midst of the more militant period of black power, even though the lyrics aren't particularly militant. I mean, it talks about marching on till victory is won, but it's right. it's got no real um, war or battle imagery in it at all. Mm-hmm. This, to me, is perhaps the greatest sign of the song's resilience, that it, it is such a key part of identity, that even as, as political strategies are being um, debated in huge conflicts, Right, our generational conflicts emerge in that era. Um, it still is such a significant part of identity that it's held on to. Imani, who uh, first called Lift Every Voice and Sing the Negro National Anthem? You know, that's a great question, and I, I'm not certain about the answer to it. Um, I'm still doing research to try to figure out when that first caught on. I mean, what I am aware of is that the NAACP had a lot of... Um, there were a lot of discussions amongst their leadership about the fact that it had begun to be called um, the Negro National Anthem because they were concerned in the midst of their sort of movements for um, integration and advocacy um, and inclusion that this idea that there would be a separate national anthem mm-hmm. would sort of lie into conf- lie in conflict with those aspirations. And so they actually referred to it as their official song. Right. But people kept calling it. Um, the Negro National Anthem and then the Black National Anthem notwithstanding. So uh, I'm not sure what the origin of, of that title is, but it has been called that as far back into recent history as I have been able to research. It, it goes back a ways. It goes back um, at least till the 1920s. And that's so interesting because, of course, it is a patriotic song in some ways, uh, and yet calling it that hints at the fact that there are still two nations or at least a nation divided. Right. Or a nation within a nation. Exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, on a personal level, uh, what's your history with this song? Uh, well, um, it's a song that I cannot recall not knowing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and knowing all three lyrics, which I sort of pride myself, three um, verses, I'm sorry, uh, which I sort of pride myself on, um, it was assumed um, in my family that that was a song that you knew. Um, and when my son learned the song, actually, at school, um, and we went home to visit my family in Alabama for Thanksgiving that year, he was a kindergartner, and he stood up and told my extended family that he had learned Lift Every Voice and Sing, and all of my extended family members stood up and sang the song with him. And he was just beaming. He was <laughs> beyond <laughs> thrilled. Um, and it was just this very, it was a very poignant moment um, for, you know, to, to have sort of, to have three generations together singing the song. So it's a deep part of my history. 
And, and how do you feel when you hear it? Um, I feel inspired and moved and a deep sense of pride. You know, that the song really um, provides a way of understanding what has often been such a difficult history for African Americans as one that is um, filled with kind of extraordinary um, heroism and courage and striving and transcendence. Uh, so it, it really it, it really gets me right in my heart when I hear it sung. Mm. And uh, I would add to that list of virtues, um, beauty. Yes, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it hints at the beauty of the, of the, tradition. Of the tradition, the culture, all of it. Yeah. Um, I, I thought I'd play one more version of Lift Every Voice and Sing, a personal favorite. Are you familiar with the, uh, the Southern Sons version from 1942? Oh, no. Oh, no? Well, you're in for a treat. Thanks, Imani. Take care. It's nice talking okay. to you. Okay, likewise. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmony Of liberty let our rejoicing rise High as the listening skies Let it resound Loud as the rolling sea Sing a song Full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song. Full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun. Of a new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of a new day begun, let us march on till victory you're listening to the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio. Today, stories for Independence Day, and it's time for part two of our show. In 1957, Frank Kameny was dismissed from his job with the federal government. The charge was being gay, which was a firing offense at the time in the U.S. Civil Service. Well, Frank was gay, and he was unapologetic about it. 
He fought back against his dismissal, became an early and vocal advocate for gay rights, and by and by won a series of battles against discriminatory laws and policies. He's widely considered one of the pioneers of the gay rights movement, helping to change the way America views same-sex relationships. Today, at the age of 85, he's still very much the human rights activist, and I got a chance to talk to him this past week about his life and work. Well, Frank, um, tell me what you were doing on the 4th of July about, say, 40, 45 years ago. Well, a group of myself and a group of uh, gay rights activists were picketing in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia as a reminder day to the world in general that all of the high ideals of personal freedom set out in the Declaration of Independence uh, were still not being enjoyed by at least this one group of people here in America. Between 1965 and 1969, you and a group of fellow gay activists were picketing in front of Independence Hall on the 4th of July. Yes. And this was before there was even a gay rights movement. People didn't even refer to a gay rights movement at that point. Uh, uh, Well, yes and no. The gay movement, the gay rights movement, or as it was often called in those days, the homophile movement, started in 1951 out in California. Uh, I uh, got it going here in Washington, D.C., and there was a group in New York, uh, a chapter of one of the California groups. But uh, it was still a very, very tiny movement. When I got going in 61, there were five or six gay rights organizations in the entire country. So it was a small movement. We were pushing forward in untrodden territory. I'll say, I mean, this was a time in American history when to be gay was still to be branded a deviant, a pervert, uh, a threat to national security, a criminal, uh, someone with a mental illness, all of those. Yes, you've named a good many of the years. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that at this time, when you and your fellow activists uh, were staging these protests in a very visible way, it was dangerous to be known as gay. I mean, uh, homosexuality wasn't even discussed in polite circles. That's no, how... and of course, until 1961, when the first of the sodomy laws was repealed, uh, sodomy... Uh, which, of course, is, uh, includes such things as all sexuals is engaged in by heterosexuals as well, but it was always thought of only in homosexual terms, uh, was a felony in all states. So you could lose your job, um, you could be jailed, you could be certainly ostracized from society, you could be the victim of all kinds of, of persecution. Did you feel, you and your group, um, doing these protests, did you feel very alone at that time? Well, I don't know that I can really respond in terms of my own emotions. I No, I didn't feel particularly alone, but uh, uh, we did have a uh, massive general and cultural resistance to face up to, and we felt that by picketing, uh, we were in fact facing up to it and hopefully causing, uh, bringing about uh, change. How, how many of there were you picketing in these demonstrations? Well, the very, very first one in Washington in April of 65, there were about 10 people. This was in front of the White House? In front of the White House. And this, I, I would be hard-pressed to give you numbers. Our last one in Washington in October 
uh, that year had, I, as I record, 65 people, which in our view was a huge demonstration. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that had people from uh, Chicago, New York, and elsewhere. And uh, my feeling is by the time we had our last one in uh, 69 in front of Independence Hall, we, we must have been up somewhere around, probably somewhere around 50 people. Mm. What was the reaction from the public and the news media? Well, in general, there wasn't all that much reaction. A lot of people didn't really quite realize what we were picketing about because it wasn't a public issue the way it has become. Uh huh. So the outrage or um, backlash that one might have expected really didn't happen? Um, only minimally. Minimally. Were you afraid, though? I never was. Uh, perhaps I, I can't speak uh, individually for each of the other uh, demonstrators. I tend to face up to people in the world, and I don't get afraid. I, uh, my feeling has always been that if people object uh, to things I'm doing, I'm right there, wrong, and that's that, as long as they don't get in my way. If they do, I tend to, uh, <laughs> there will be a fight, and I tend not to lose my wars, and I fight the war. <laughs> well, I'm very interested in someone like you um, taking on a cause that really had few few people willing to stand up for it, and uh, when the consequences could be enormous, I mean, the negative consequences yes. for anybody taking this, this position. Um, when did you become active in gay rights? Well, basically, I took a job in 1957 with uh, what was then called the Army Map Service. It's changed its name. And uh, I was fired in late 57 because I was gay. I fought it all the way up to uh, the Supreme Court. I wrote my own uh, Supreme Court uh, petition in January 61, uh, and which, to my knowledge, was the first gay rights legal brief ever filed anywhere. The Supreme Court not unexpectedly turned it down in March of that year, and uh, which ended my personal case. But at that point, I'd been faced with the issues. It was obvious that something had to be done so I proceeded to organize things here, and uh, I founded the movement here in late 61, and that ended up, in retrospect, being the initiation of gay activism and militancy for the whole country. I might point out that I had appealed administratively to the Civil Service Commission in 57. Sometimes the bureaucracy mows over things for a long time, and last year... After 52 years, the OPM gave me a beautiful letter apologizing to me for the government's shameful action in firing me 52 years earlier. 52 years after you were fired from the U.S. Army Map Service, uh, the U.S. government formally apologized. Apologized to me in a very, very nice letter, yes. So, so you didn't deny being homosexual, I mean, when oh, they no. fired you? No, I don't think it's something to deny if it's a fact. Well, what's interesting is that at that time, people who were fired by the government for being gay or uh, who were caught up in police stings, let's say, who were arrested or otherwise, you know, exposed as being gay, it was a scandal. Many people slunk off into anonymity. Right? Some of them still do. Some of them still do. <laughs> it still happens. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, and, and here we are in the McCarthy era. And, and you said there's nothing to be ashamed of and said, you're going to fight this. Um, 
Um, I'm just sort of fascinated by what kind of you know personal constitution. Well, uh, you uh, let, had. Me put, let me put it. Let me put it to you differently. Okay. And in summary, um, over the years, a lot of people have urged me to write an autobiography. Maybe someday I will. Although I suspect at my age I probably won't. But I have drafted a sort of a forward. Somebody is, in fact, writing a biography, and uh, that will be there. And let me give you that, and it's going to answer your question in full. Sure. And that is, the one thing that I have absolute faith in is the validity of the product of my own intellectual processes. Therefore, if the world and I, or society and I, or the culture and I differ on something, I'll give it a second look and give them a second chance uh, to make their point. If we still differ, then, as I said earlier, I am right and they are wrong, and that is that, as long as they don't get in my way. If they do, there will be a fight, and I tend not to lose my wars. Therefore, over the years and the issues that I've decided to fight, you can't fight them all, I have chosen not to adjust myself to society, but with considerable success to adjust society to me. And society is much the better off for the adjustments I have administered. <laughs> that, that that encapsulates the answer to your question. Well, well, the the disposition you just described is one that I think is shared by people who have a, a big impact on history. Yes. Uh, people who are now looked at as visionary and ahead of their time. Yes. But also, I mean, a few crazy people who thought they were right <laughs> when, in fact, they were they were really really wrong. Um, how did you know you weren't, I mean, when you looked at the majority opinion at that time, the overwhelming majority opinion, you never wavered? No, because I was right and they were wrong. <laughs> well, it, from those early days when you had, what, uh, a couple of dozen people accompanying you in these protests, into the 70s when the gay rights movement really came into its own, a, a rather, um, you know, gigantic change. Uh, in a very short amount of time. The the turning point, of course, and I'm saying nothing novel, uh, was Stonewall. We had tried all through the 60s to make a grassroots movement out of it uh, without real success. There were five or six gay groups in uh, 61. They had grown to 50 or 60, which isn't all that much more, in uh, 69. What Stonewall did... Uh, was to convert that into an actual grassroots movement. Uh, by 1970, by some counts, there were a thousand or so gay groups in the country. By 1971, there were about 2,500 and people stopped counting. And so it was, that was a real transition. And I feel that our picketing demonstrations uh, prior to 69 created the mindset which made Stonewall possible. It wouldn't have happened um, uh, without our demonstrations in the preceding five years. Were those demonstrations that you held starting in 1965, were they the first public demonstrations in favor of of gay rights? With one single exception that I know of, uh, a year earlier in New York, uh, Randy Wicker and, and a small number of people had picketed, I think, a, a military recruiting center or something of the sort. Other than that, uh, ours, ours were the first, yes. Um, and as I said, 
in 65 where we picketed the White House three times, the State Department, the Civil Service Commission, and the Pentagon, plus Independence Hall. Mm -hmm. Now, did you take inspiration from the Civil Rights Movement? Uh, Very much. I was present in 63 at the famous uh, uh, Martin Luther King rally uh, on the Mall here in Washington in August of 63. I was there, and uh, with a... uh, um, a gay rights sign. Oh, yes. Oh, you were? Oh, yes. In other words, I was there for his famous I Have a Dream speech. But at the same time, the Civil Rights Movement was not real comfortable with no, we, the we gay rights movement. No, we had a lot of persuasion over the ensuing years. It was a slow, slow process, but there, but there was uh, slow but steady progress, yes. D- did you attempt to form an alliance, and was it rebuffed? To some degree, yes. And... Uh, our issue was still a, a very, very novel one uh, in those times, and people weren't thinking in those terms terribly much, and uh, some of them still aren't. You, you get what I uh, refer to endlessly as the nutty fundamentalists, the religious people who still haven't come to terms with us. Not at all. Um, did you know, by any chance, Bayard Rustin, uh, who, of course, was a, a key figure in the civil rights movement, uh, colleague of Martin Luther King, but who was also gay and was, uh, I guess, forced to resign from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference because he was gay. No, I did not. I certainly knew of him later, but at that time, no, I didn't. Mm. You say that it it took quite a while. Uh, Eventually, though, you were able to make some inroads with the civil rights movement? Uh, uh, Yes. There's still uh, very much a mixture of reactions um, from the whole black uh, civil rights community, and there are some places where uh, we are comfortably accepted and uh, others who still don't. Was the uh, rejection, though, that you experienced in some cases, uh, was that hurtful? Uh, Again, um, I'll repeat, as I said (laughs) earlier when I was giving you my basic statement of principle, I have absolute confidence in the validity of my own intellectual processes. Therefore, if they reject me, it's not for me to be hurt. I am right, and they are wrong, and that is that. End. (laughs) Um, I don't react emotionally that way in a negative sense. I simply fight them back, because I am right, and they are wrong, and we are right as gay people, and the homophobes are wrong. End of discussion. When you were fired... um from the government in 1957. You were an astronomer. You had a Ph.D. from Harvard. Yes. Um, you had also fought in World War II. Is that right? Uh, yes. I was in uh, frontline combat in uh, Europe uh, in World War II. I might point out, incidentally, that while Don't Ask, Don't Tell Us is colloquially called what I call the military gay ban, uh, became statutory law in 1993. It was military policy are going very, very far back. And when I enlisted in the Army three days before my 18th birthday, on May 18th, 1943, uh, they asked. I didn't tell. And I have resented for 67 years that I had to lie to my government in order to participate in, in, in an effort that I strongly supported. Hmm. They, they asked, you didn't tell. In other words, you said... Hey, despite the fact that it was a healthy, vigorous teenager, there were, there were some things to tell. Not all that much, but some, and uh, I didn't. 
Mm. So you you did uh, ship out to to the European theater in World War II. Oh yes, we I fought uh, in Holland and, and uh, all across Germany. I, I was an eighty millimeter, eighty one millimeter mortar crewman, and uh, reached the exalted rank of Private First Class. <laughs> Were you part of the D Day landing? No, I was doing uh, advanced training uh, here in uh, uh, it's now Fort. It was then Camp Polk, Louisiana with the 8th Armored Division, uh, with which I eventually went over. But uh, D-Day was uh, June 6, 44, and uh, we crossed um, in November of 44. Mm. Uh, initially went to England and France, and then eventually got into combat in uh, uh, Holland in early 45. But that uh, service in the U.S. military in combat didn't uh, matter when it came to being dismissed for being gay from your job. No, 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 no. Uh, what did you do after losing your job, having spent your life up until that time as an astronomer? Uh, it became difficult, and uh, I had some funds initially, but there was a period of about eight months in uh, late 59 when I was living on 20 cents worth of food a day, 25 when I could afford a pat of butter, and while 20 cents went a lot farther in 1959 than it does not 2010, uh, it was still uh, not easy. I got a series of jobs. Um, uh, my bachelor's degree is in physics, optics. I got a series of jobs in physics, but again, I couldn't get a security clearance, which meant that all through the 60s, um, these were third- and fourth-rate companies which went from under me. And uh, a financial wizard, uh, I am not. <laughs> And uh, economics has never been my strong point. And uh, so that financially, um, things have been difficult in, in a variety of ways over the ensuing decades and uh, are still significant problems even now, yes. But you, you got by, but you never again uh, worked as an astronomer? No. Hmm. Unfortunately, and for much of the 60s, I was a physicist from nine until five on weekdays, and a gay activist in the evenings and weekends. But gradually the gay activism took over, and the show became a kind of a full-time sort of thing uh, by the very late 60s and onward. Um, we talked a little bit about your own sense of confidence um, and conviction that you were right, and um, society and, go and the government... It's not a sense of conviction, it's fact. Okay, well, we've talked about your recognition that you were right. Fair. How's that? Fair enough. <laughs> um, but what did you say to, um, let's say, people you met who were gay but who were not so certain or who were afraid of, you know, demonstrating in public, who were afraid for their careers, for their reputations? Did you ever counsel such people? Well, yes, and ultimately you have to deal uh, realistically with a particular a factual situation in each person's own life, and ultimately those are decisions which people have to make and, and must be allowed to make uh, for themselves individually. And, and what we did in all these decades was to try to make it more feasible to come out in the open. Now, for example, I made a personal project out of turning the Civil Service Commission around. It took me 18 years 
um, uh, through court decisions. I backed the Civil Service Commission into a corner, and in 1975, they reversed their policy. So um, among the things you're credited with is helping to reverse anti-gay hiring and firing policies in the U.S. government, helping to overturn um, discriminatory security clearance policies that used to deny gay people security clearances for government jobs. You helped overturn the American Psychiatric Association's classification of homosexuality as a disease, and you've helped uh, get sodomy laws struck down. Yes. Um, And uh, I'm sure a number of other accomplishments as well. But from what I've read, the one thing you're most proud of is is, is coining a particular phrase. Uh, Yes. We had been uh, presented with an unmitigated, unrelenting negative assault, whether it was because we were sick or criminal or sinful or whatever. There was never an affirmative word coming through. Well, in uh, the early part of 1968, for much the same reason, the Sacco-Nerd dynamics were identical, the slogan, Black is Beautiful, was coined. And I decided we needed very much the same thing, uh, the equivalent for us. So in July 1968, I coined the slogan, Gay is Good, and if I'm remembered for nothing else after I'm gone, uh, I want to be remembered for that. Why, why uh, with all those other major accomplishments, is, is, that, is that your favorite? Because underneath, conceptually, it underlies everything else. If gay isn't good, then all the rest of it uh, begins uh, significantly loses its rationale. And uh, uh, this provides conceptually, the rationale for everything else is not merely that gay is not bad, but the next step over. Gay is affirmatively good, and therefore all other things that are gay must be given full affirmative treatment. So, looking back over these past 50 years that you've been involved in in gay rights, what's your perspective on how far you've come and, and how far there is to go? Well, uh, We've come beyond anything we could possibly have imagined back in the 60s. I mean, we were picketing in front of a hostile White House in 1965, and I was an honored guest inside the White House with the president um, in 2009. And when they uh, had a uh, reception to commemorate Stonewall, and uh, uh, so that we could never conceivably have imagined that. But there is still a lot of negativism and hostility, particularly from the religious community. Uh, There are still genuine issues that are working their way out but uh, haven't worked their way out yet. Uh, The whole question of same-sex marriage, um, which was a very new issue. It wasn't thought of back then when I got into things. Gays in the military, um, uh, and so on. There will always be the issue. Racism is still alive in this country, um, and always will be to some degree. These prejudices, these bigotries exist, and they don't go away totally. And we still have to continue pushing. In general, uh, the tide is very, very much with us. There will be occasional, I'm sure, nasty uh, losses now and then. But um, uh, things are moving ahead. At the age of 85, I don't know how much more I'll be around to see, but I'm certainly looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. What are you doing on this 4th of July? 
I will be participating in the city of Philadelphia's Fourth of July parade, along with a couple of other gay activists. Well, Frank, happy Fourth of July. Thank you. Frank Kameny, who spoke to us from his home in Washington, D.C. And incidentally, in recognition of his work, that home was designated a D.C. historic landmark last year. And just a few weeks ago, a portion of a street was named in his honor. Speaking of street names, this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week.